we are trying to evolve, to improve the human condition. We all possess some level of cultural incapacity, but we're trying to move to a level of consistent cultural competence. We all recognize that culture provides us with our identity, our beliefs, our values, and our behaviors. And we also know it is learned as a part of the natural process of growing up in a family and a community and from participating in societal institutions. So if we start to move into what we need to think about in order to be relevant with our teams from a global context, we have to understand that culture gives context and meaning. So it's sort of like it's a filter through which people process their experiences and events in their lives. But we have to be really careful about how loudly progressive we are. And I say we in terms of our mission about you know diversity, equity, and inclusion. We can't afford, because we don't understand the culture, to get kicked out of the country or, or put their people at any type of risk. So we need to have this skill called cultural competence. It's the ability to think and feel and act in ways that acknowledge, respect, and build upon ethnic, sociocultural, and linguistic diversity. It's about the integration and transformation of knowledge about individuals and groups of people into pretty specific standards, policies, practices, and attitudes that are used in an appropriate way in a cultural setting to increase the quality of services. That's how we get better outcomes. So if cultural competence is the awareness, knowledge, and skills needed to work with others who are culturally different from self in meaningful, relevant, and productive ways, then our ability to work effectively across cultures in a way that acknowledges and respects that culture is what our role is. Some of this research I'm going through comes from the work of J.H. Hanley. And they wrote a book, Beyond the Tip of the Iceberg, Five Stages Toward Cultural Competence. So I'm using a little bit of that research and backing along with the Hofstede model to put it in a voice that helps us understand we need to skill up. At the individual level, I want you to think about cultural competence through the lens of a set of consistent behaviors and attitudes that create this thing that we're calling respect with people that are different from ourselves. In the workplace, literally the context is a set of consistent behaviors, attitudes, and beliefs that respect interactions within our team, within our team that may be different from ourselves. We have to be able to get to this thing called intercultural communications that are effective. So the benefits of cultural competence, let's be clear. We know it will produce better performance outcomes. It's also gonna provide multiple perspectives on problem solving. It helps create an environment that allows everyone to reach their version of potential and what we need. Of course, it's gonna impact employee morale, but I think it's gonna reduce some of the complaints that we get and some of the grievances that we have to deal with our ability to develop a skill set and a mindset that includes cultural competence in the workplace, it's so important that we do it. Now, a couple of things I want us to focus on. A lot of this has to do with your own self-awareness. You have a culture, you have a value, you have a set of lived experiences that drive how you think about your own culture. We are working in a global voice, in a global context, trying to help people that have very different belief systems. So self-awareness is one of the foundations of what we have to pay attention to. Cultural understanding, I think the, the piece that is the most critical for us to understand is that our ability to be adaptable and flexible 
is how we're going to make more relevant relationships. Because this thing about um, intercultural communication is how we do our work day to day. So if you want to have more effective communication across global lines in country, you have to think differently. So there's a couple of essentials I'm going to run through and then I want to take you through one of Hofstede's models. Everybody's at a different level if I put it on a continuum, but I want you to think about some of the essentials is you have to think about your beliefs and a worldview at the same time. People fundamentally have very different ways of seeing the world and their role. If you just think about it, even from a U.S. point of view, in the West, people think they believe they're in charge of their fate, but most other cultures are more fatalistic, either it's meant to be or not, which has a very significant impact on multicultural teams. We know there's already communication styles. Different people have wildly different ways of communication, especially regarding context and directness. If I look at North America, people tend to say what they mean, but in most other cultures, people are more indirect which can seem confusing or even misleading. There's this thing about people being formal versus informal. If you look at formality, cultures differ greatly in greetings, manners, and, and in etiquette. In the U.S., people tend to be casual, both in dress and behavior, but in most other cultures, formality is more valued and is an essential sign of respect. So based on where you are on the globe, doing our job, you have to pay attention to that and not just lead with your own perspective. Hierarchy is a big deal. Cultures differ in whether their societies are horizontal or vertical. Again, in the West, people are generally seen as equals. But in Asia, Latin and Middle Eastern cultures, there's a much more emphasis on and comfort with hierarchy and strong leadership concentrated at the top. We can get to all the other things like perceptions of time, values and priorities. Everyone's unique. The reality is all these things you have to pay attention to if we're going to be able to live our mission, we have to pay attention to what it means to truly achieve a level of cultural competence. I want to get into this, uh, just a, a real quick construct about cultural incapacity versus cultural competence. Cultural incapacity is the inability to work with diverse populations. There is not an intention to ignore issues or promote policies and standards that have an adverse impact on minorities or any cultural group. Instead, their practices are based on a lack of understanding and a level of ignorance, not ignorance in a, in a negative context, but if you don't know what you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. So some of us are experiencing a cultural incapacity. And we're trying to solve that by you know, listening to things like this, but also doing your work. Cultural competence, on the other hand, promotes differences in cognitive, behavioral, philosophical, social, and communicative styles that are different from cultural generational context even. Individuals seek to understand, ask for clarification or reasons for the behavior, and communicate policies and procedures really clearly to people on their teams. We've got to get to the cultural competence piece. We sometimes fall short because we don't know we're doing this and we haven't ever looked through the lens of, do I have a deficit? We're trying to close the gap between cultural incapacity and cultural competence. We are focused on doing the best we can with the knowledge we do have. 
it's podcasts like this that help open the aperture for how you see things in direct relation to who you are in service of who we are helping. Understanding someone else's culture to that culture is a gift, the gift of understanding. So let's do our part. We recognize that differences can emerge from even the initial greeting of a person. We know this already. So some cultures shake hands while others would find that interaction offensive or uncomfortable. Even simple gestures like pointing or beckoning, for example, can lead to misunderstandings between different cultures and even affect the relationship between provider and patient. Some cultures avoid eye contact as a sign of respect, and others consider pointing with your index finger as highly offensive. We have to pay attention. Gestures do not have a universal meaning. And we go very confidently across the globe doing our job, using the gestures we were socialized with as a way to communicate, not knowing that in some cultures, it could be highly offensive. I, I take the okay sign that we do with our hands, three fingers, and you put your index finger and your thumb together and you, you say okay. So in the UK and in the US, that's exactly what that hand signal means. If you're in Japan, that signal means monkey. If you're in Russia, that signal is zero. If you're in Brazil, it's an insult. Even our hand gestures, our eye contact, how we beckon someone, how we nod at someone, the tone of voice we use. If you are striving to have true cultural competence, those things you will search for and try to understand as quickly as you can to improve the outcomes, especially as we try to live out our mission. We're all on a continuum of self-development. Take this part seriously and see what you need to identify that will allow you to grow versus remain where you are. So let me move us into the Hofstede model. So Professor Hofstede's research started at IBM. He conducted research in 40 countries and discovered that cultural values strongly influence relationships. It's one of the reasons we're talking about it. And there were five cultural dimensions that Hofstede defined that have been cited by many, many other researchers. And the understanding of these dimensions and how they differ between nationalities provides a really useful basis for understanding key national cultural differences. So the areas were power distance, individualism, masculinity, uncertainty avoidance index, pragmatism, and indulgence. Let me repeat those again. Power distance, individualism, masculinity, uncertainty avoidance index, pragmatism, indulgence. We'll take one, I'll give you an application for one of them so it can make. So if you think of pragmatism, uh, this dimension actually describes how every society has to maintain some links with its own past while dealing with the challenges of the present and the future. And societies prioritize these two existential goals really differently. Normative societies who, on the dimension of pragmatism, for example, prefer to maintain time-honored traditions and norms while viewing societal change with suspicion. Those with a culture that's different, on the other hand, take a more pragmatic approach. They encourage thrift and effort in modern education as a way to prepare for the future. You got to think about that. I just talked about it two different ways. Now, depending on what country you're in, 
who you're dealing with, it looks different. If you're in a culture that's maintaining time-honored traditions and norms, and they view societal change with suspicion, that's a different way to approach that person. For some people, encourage thrift and efforts in modern education as a way to prepare for the future. It's not about time-honored traditions. There's going to be a disconnect. So I want you to think about people that are in different types of societies, and I want you to pay attention to having a really strong concern about establishing what their absolute truth is, what their norm is in the way they think. If you can understand why they exhibit such great respect for their traditions or their propensity toward a more pragmatic approach, you'll be able to impact them in a very different way. You can achieve quicker results that actually matter. So that's pragmatism. If I think of uncertainty avoidance index, I talked about that one. So Haas has said that this relates to the degree of anxiety that society members feel when in uncertain or unknown situations. Culture that score high on the uncertainty avoidance index try to avoid ambiguous situations whenever possible. They are governed by rules and order and they seek a collective truth. People who score low on this indicate that the society enjoys novel events and values differences. There are very few rules and people are encouraged to discover their own truth. So let me give you an application of that. If you were discussing a project, for example, and you were in Belgium and that country scored fairly high on the uncertainty avoidance index, you should investigate, if you know that's who you're with, you should investigate the various options and then present a limited number of choices, but have very, very detailed information available on your contingency and risk plans. But you also need to know that there's going to be difference between French and Dutch speakers in Belgium. So context is going to be different. I need you to pay attention. Pay attention to where you are and how you are approaching these things like problem solving or innovation. Let's talk about masculinity and individualism for a second. Just want to give you a couple of examples so you understand how to apply this. So masculinity, according to Hofstede, refers to how much a society sticks with and values traditional male and female roles. High masculinity scores are found in countries where men are expected to be tough, to be the provider, and to be assertive. If women work outside the home, they tend to have separate professions for men. So low masculinity scores in his research do not reverse the gender roles. In low masculinity scores, the roles are simply blurred. You see women and men working together equally across many professions. Now think about some of the regions that we're in. It is perfectly acceptable to see both a man and a woman speaking with us about making decisions about what we do and how we can be helpful. Depending on the culture that we're in, the region that we're in, the country that we're in, you realize you can't talk to the woman and expect to get a decision. Let me give you an application. So Japan is highly masculine and if the score, you know, it's one to a hundred. And so the higher to a hundred, when you do the assessment, Hofstede's model, the more you exhibit the behavior. So Japan is highly masculine with a score of 95, whereas Sweden has the lowest measured value of five. So according to Hofstede's analysis, if you were to open an office in Japan you might have greater success if you appointed a male employee to lead the team and had a strong male contingent on the team. On the other hand, if you're in Sweden, you would aim for a team that was balanced in terms of skill 
rather than gender. This is not benign. These are not things not to pay attention to. As the world becomes more global, as we pay attention in different ways to have impact and have meaning and actually solve important world societal issues, we cannot skip the importance of understanding culture. Let's talk about individualism for a second. This refers to the strength of the ties people have to others within the community. A high individualism score indicates loose connections. In countries with that high score, there's a lack of interpersonal connection and little sharing of responsibility beyond family and perhaps a few close friends. A society with a low individualism score would have strong group cohesion and there would be a large amount of loyalty and respect for members of the group. The group itself is also larger and people take more responsibility for each other's well-being. Let's look at application for a second, just so I can be clear. The analysis would suggest that in the Central American countries of Panama and Guatemala, where the individualism scores are very low, 11 and 6 respectively, a marketing campaign that emphasized benefits to the community or that tied into a popular political movement would likely be understood and well-received. Think about it. Think about it. It's very different. You have to pay attention to what you're trying to accomplish and where you are. I hope everybody really pay attention to the one called power distance, which is the degree of inequality that exists and is accepted among people with and without power. So a high power distance score indicates that society accepts an unequal distribution of power and that people understand their place in the system. Low power density score means that power is shared and well dispersed. It also means that society members view themselves as equals. So if I have a high power distance score, I actually accept an unequal distribution of power and that people are supposed to stay in their place. If I have a low score, I mean, power distance is not that important to me. They view themselves as equal. One of the places he studied when he was doing his survey was in Malaysia. Their score for power distance was 104. In Malaysia, you would send reports only to top management and have closed door meetings where only select powerful leaders were in attendance. Now, for some of us, we would think, why would you do that? Why would you have a closed door meeting for a report when the information in the report applies to everybody? It seems inefficient. That is a cultural nuance. Cultural competency would suggest you understand the skill of toggling and pivoting. We have to be really agile. Cultural incapacity, it feels like you'll experience more resistance. If you have cultural competence, you'll have a higher level of understanding that will allow you to have better relationships and better outcomes. I want you to think about indulgence versus restraint. Indulgence versus restraint. One challenge that confronts humanity now and in the past is the degree to which little children are socialized. We all get our lived experience to start when we're young. We understand good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. Without socialization, we do not actually become human. So think about it. Biologically, of course, we're human. But we don't understand what that means until we're socialized to understand what it means. So indulgence versus restraint. This dimension is defined as the extent to which people try to control their desires and impulses based on the way they were raised. Relatively weak control is called indulgence and relatively strong control is called restraint. Cultures can therefore be described as indulgent or restrained. 
with a high score of 97, don't forget it's one to 100, with a high score of 97, Mexican culture has a definite tendency toward indulgence. People in societies classified by a high score in indulgence generally exhibit a willingness to realize their impulses and desires with regard to enjoying life and having fun. They possess a positive attitude and have a tendency toward optimism. In addition, they play a higher degree of importance on leisure time, act as they please, and spend money as they wish. So if you think about that, and you think about the culture that you're interacting with views leisure time in a very different way where health may not be a priority, you're going to have to have a different approach. Now remember, these are a lot of generalities, but a lot of this is based on the research. So what I want to move into are just a couple of examples just to help us help ground us in what to do. Let's go back to the thing where we talked about pragmatism. We talked about pragmatism and what it actually meant in terms of how every society has to maintain some links to its own past while dealing with the challenges of the present and the future. So if you look at pragmatism, a group that encourages modern education as a way to prepare for the future, believes truth depends on situation, context, and time, has a strong propensity to save and invest. So a tip for working for someone with high pragmatism score is to focus on perseverance to achieve long-term results and reward commitment. Remember, if you have a low pragmatism score, you maintain time-honored traditions. You view change with suspicion. You favor personal steadiness and stability to work in that country, in region. You need to be prepared to make an effort to build a stronger relationship. You have to focus on achieving really quick results. You have to expect to live by the standards you create. That's what you have to do because they maintain time-honored traditions. You have to come through that exact same lens. Different example, we talked about uncertainty avoidance index. Don't forget, if you have a high score in uncertainty avoidance, you're very formal business conduct. You have a lot of rules and policy. You need and expect structure. There's a sense of nervousness and high levels of emotion and expressions and differences are avoided. So if you're working in a culture, country, region that has a high uncertainty avoidance index score, you have to be really clear and concise about your expectations and parameters. Plan, prepare, communicate often, early, provide detailed plans, and focus on the tactical aspects of the job and what you're trying to accomplish. If you're working in a country that has low uncertainty avoidance, remember they are informal business attitude. That's what they have. They have more of a concern with long-term strategy than what is happening on a daily basis. And they're more accepting of change and risk. So in that context, what you should do is do not impose rules or structure unnecessarily. Minimize your emotional response by being calm and contemplating situations before speaking. Express curiosity when you discover differences. So don't forget we have these masculinity scores. So cultures with the high masculinity score, men are masculine and women are feminine. That is the philosophy. There's a well-defined distinction between men's work and women's work. What you have to do be aware that people may expect male and female roles to be distinct. Advise men to avoid discussing emotions or making emotionally based decisions or arguments. If there's a low masculinity score, a woman can do anything a man can do. Powerful and successful women are admired and respected. So in that culture, avoid a boys club mentality. Ensure job design and practices are not discriminatory to either gender. Treat men and women equally. 
you realize as, as I'm giving you these examples, some of these cut across your own culture based on how you were socialized, what you grew up with, what you have come to understand and how you behave in order to get your job done. We have to figure out how to close the gap between cultural incapacity and cultural competence. So I want to spend just a little bit of time. You keep hearing me talk about scores. This is about Hofstede's cultural dimensions by country, by score. So zero being the low end of the score, 100 being the top. So the closer a country's dimension is to 100, the more strongly it's exhibited. And I suggest you look up Hofstede after listening to this podcast if you find interest in that. But I'm going to cut across just a couple of the areas. So if you look at power distance and you look at Mexico, it's in the 80th percentile. If you look at the U.S., it's in the high 30s. If you look at Brazil, it's in the mid 60s, approaching 70. If you look at South Africa, it's in the high 40s. If you look at Costa Rica, it's just above 30. If you look at Canada, it's in the high 30s. If you look at the UK, it's in the just touching 60. If you look at Chile, it's in the low 50s. If you look at Japan, it's in the 50s. And if you look at Argentina, it's in the high 40s. So just think about being able to look at an index like this just helps you understand where a country could be. Now, are there things that people would refute based on the country that they're in, based on societal changes and regulations and policies and things that have happened? Probably. That's not the goal of this session. The goal isn't to refute the research. The goal is to increase your cultural competence and using this as a standard to get started. You will find that as you're doing your work on any given day, on any given day, what you need to do is show the ability to be agile and actually change if you need to change your approach to problem solving, to innovation, to living out the mission that we're trying to achieve. And it's very, very different for us to work in a cultural context if we're not willing to understand what the culture is. Don't forget, culture provides us with our identity, our beliefs, our values, and our behaviors. It's learned. It's a part of the natural process of growing up in a family, in a community, in a culture. And the reality is it's unconscious for most people. So take that on. Understand that when you're doing the job, language, beliefs, priorities, values, and cultures drives how you make decisions and how you work as a team. It also has everything to do with how we treat one another. So I am looking for you and challenging you to adopt this cultural competence mindset so you can be cross-culturally competent, not just competent across the projects and the countries that you're working in, but cross-culturally competent across just the depth and breadth of who we serve. We all can learn different things. Our job is to skill up, level up, so that we can help each other.